Who does not want great things, or at least the opportunity to do great things in this life? The scribe Baruch found out that not everyone is called to a life of social prominence. We too are likely to find that out, but how can we best respond to this likely truth? Welcome to Every Last Word, a radio and internet program with Dr. Philip Ryken, teaching the whole Bible to change your whole life. Today we continue our verse-by-verse study in the book of Jeremiah by looking at the end of Baruch's career and find out what that means for faithful everyday living. Well, Phil, we're all familiar with the concept of what a chart topper is, and not everyone's called to top the charts of Christian accomplishment. We see such an example in the story of Jeremiah's secretary, Baruch. What do we see in this story that can be an example for us? Well, Mark, here's a man who wasn't very well known, and he knew it. I mean, Jeremiah's, I suppose, not all that well known even today for Christians, but I mean, how many people really know about Baruch, who was, as you say, Jeremiah's secretary? And yet, what a great example that is for us, because many times we may face the same struggle, feeling like we're not really accomplishing anything very significant. But here's an example of a man who was taught by the Lord to find contentment in doing even the little things for the glory of God. And we can do that when God's glory is really our main focus and not what we can accomplish ourselves. Well, sometimes, especially when we're being self-focused, as was Baruch here, we can find ourselves in despair. How can we find a way out of those dark times? Well, Mark, uh, Baruch really thought that he was suffering. He talks in this passage from Jeremiah about his physical pain, about his sorrow and grief, about the groaning frustration of his daily work. In God's answer, I think you've really already hinted at what the answer is, Mark, and that is not to feel sorry for ourselves, but first of all, to recognize that judgment is coming and our main focus really ought to be in giving people the saving message of God's grace while there's still time. And then I think we could add something to that, something the gospel tells us that Baruch didn't yet understand in the way that we do. We have a Savior in Jesus who himself has suffered greatly and who has compassion for us in our dark times of trial. And really the way out and the way through is by focusing not on ourselves, but on Jesus and his grace. Thanks, Phil. Now let's open our Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 45 and hear God's word for us today. You may have already noticed this is the shortest chapter in the book of Jeremiah. It deals with the Life and ministry of Baruch, who I believe is the only man from the Old Testament who has been fingerprinted. Back in 1975, a group of archaeologists bought a collection of clay document markers from an Arab antiquities dealer. And about a decade later, they finally got around to deciphering these markers, which were the sort of bookmarks of the ancient world. And when they did, they discovered that one of them bore the seal of Baruch, son of Neriah. And since that time, another document marker has been discovered, which bears not only Baruch's seal, but also a thumbprint, and very likely the thumbprint of the scribe himself. And by this, we know that Baruch was a man of flesh and blood and fingerprint. And this reminds us, as we discover also in this chapter, that he was a man who had all of the weaknesses and all of the failings which are common to humanity, 
including a sinful heart. Now, from time to time, as we have studied Jeremiah, Jeremiah may have seemed hard for us to relate to. He did such mighty deeds, and he spoke such bold words that he towers above the ordinary believer. But here we find a man very much like us. His sins and his sorrows sound very familiar. What can we learn from the experience of Baruch? You may remember that Baruch was Jeremiah's secretary. And Jeremiah 45 is a sort of flashback or perhaps an appendix or a postscript to Jeremiah 36. And in that great chapter, Jeremiah dictated all of his prophecies and Baruch wrote them down on a great scroll. And then Jeremiah sent Baruch to read those prophecies at the fast at the temple. And eventually the scroll was taken to King Jehoiakim, and the king, in an act of outright rebellion, tore the very word of God to pieces and cast it into the winter fire. And it was some time during that infamous episode that the word of the Lord came to Baruch. This is what Jeremiah told him in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, after Baruch had written on a scroll the words Jeremiah was then dictating. Although the scripture doesn't say at exactly what moment this prophecy came, we have the sense that Baruch has just finished putting the finishing touches on his Jeremiah scroll. And God spoke to Baruch because he had been complaining. And this is why I say that Baruch's sins are very familiar to us. This is what the Lord says to you, Baruch. You said to me, woe to me. The Lord has added sorrow to my pain. I am worn out with groaning and find no rest. One after another, these words convey great weariness of body and soul. Woe, sorrow, pain, groaning, no rest. Baruch is discouraged. He is disheartened. He is disillusioned. And it is not hard to guess some of the reasons why he might have been in such despair. The Bible says the word of the Lord came to him after he had written the scroll. And so he may have been in despair because of all Jeremiah's words of judgment. According to those prophecies, as we have studied week after week, the Reformation would fail, the city would fall, and the whole culture would be destroyed. And so Baruch may have been filled with fear. He may have been afraid for Jeremiah's life and for his own life. Furthermore, the message on the scroll was so dire that he may have been very afraid of going to the temple to read it. He may have realized that the people might kill the messenger because they hated the message. It is possible also that Baruch started to complain sometime later, perhaps after he learned that the king had burned his manuscript. It is very discouraging to have all one's work go to waste. I know of a man who lost the complete typescript of his dissertation, not once, but twice. And he was so discouraged that he never completed his doctorate. On occasion, I myself have lost perhaps a day or two of work through computer failure. And if you've ever had that happen, you know it's close to a national disaster every time that it happens. 
Think then of the great discouragement it might have been to Baruch to lose not simply a day or two of work, but weeks and months of carefully and laboriously copying out by hand the prophecies of Jeremiah. And when Jeremiah's manuscript was burned by Jehoiakim, all of his hard labor went up in smoke. And not just any labor, the labor of writing a scroll containing the very words of God. And this could well explain why Baruch said, Oi, Lee, which means, woe is me. Or perhaps God's word came to Baruch while he was making his second copy of the manuscript. His complaint is that he is worn out, and day after day he has been getting out the scroll and writing the letters and scratching out his mistakes with a knife and all of the rest of it. Surely Baruch would have agreed with the philosopher who wrote Ecclesiastes and said, of making many books there is no end, and much study wearies the body. That's true of all hard work. Hard work wearies the body, and a weary body often makes for a weary soul. Baruch was more than just tired. He was discouraged. He speaks of pain, which may refer to some physical problem, perhaps back pain or some other such pain. He speaks of sorrow, which seems to refer to grief, perhaps even the loss or potential loss of a loved one. He speaks of groaning which could refer to some other secret burden which he carried in his heart. So you see, the words of Baruch's lament cover all of the difficulties of life in this fallen world. In one way or another, they touch every trouble of the human heart. And when the people of God come to worship God on the Lord's day, many of them are worn out. We are tired from our work or from our schoolwork or from our housework day after day and week after week and month after month and year after year. We are worn down by our jobs and our families and our ministries. Others of us have pain, especially physical pain. Some have a life-threatening illness. Others have some chronic ailment, which perhaps will torment them until they die. And then for others, sorrow is added to the pain. As we remember the death of loved ones or lament the passing of happy days. Others of us carry around some groaning. We have some secret wound perhaps known only to a few or to no one else at all, which is nevertheless painful to the touch. And so we say, woe to me, because of all the weariness and pain and sorrow of life. And it is good as we read this chapter to understand that we do not suffer alone. The people of God in the past have had the same struggles that we have, and yet... They have found God to be faithful in every situation. It is a wonderful thing that the Bible mentions all of the trials and sorrows of life. That is one of the reasons for its continual relevance. It speaks to every troubled emotion of the soul. And it assures us first that such sorrow and groaning are common to the human condition. And then it reminds us further that we have a Savior who understands all of the trials of life. 
Jesus Christ was a man of sorrows. He went through the pain of dying for our sins on the cross. He was worn out with groaning as he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And therefore, when we turn to God and take all of our troubles and sorrows to him, we are not turning to someone who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. On the contrary, Jesus has the most tender and intimate empathy with every trial and sorrow of the human heart. Now, what counsel would you give to Baruch? Would you tell him to take a few days off? Would you ask him to consider pursuing another ministry? Would you lend him a sympathetic ear? Would you perhaps remind him that in all things God works together for the good of those who love him? Well, on occasion, some of those things might be good to say to a man or a woman who is depressed. There is a time for resting, a time for listening, a time for changing jobs, and a time for resting in the sovereignty of God. But God has something very different to say to Baruch. and Very likely, he would say it to anyone who says, woe is me. This is what the Lord says, should you seek great things for yourself, seek them not. In other words, God was telling Baruch to stop being so selfish. God could see into Baruch's very heart, and he saw how self-centered he was. Notice the way that when he laments, Baruch keeps referring to himself. Woe to me! The Lord has added sorrow to my pain. I am worn out. And he sounds even more self-centered in the Hebrew, where nearly every word ends with a first-person pronoun. My woe, my pain, my being worn out, my groaning, my finding no rest. And so we see that however much Baruch may have thought that he hated his life at this moment, He was, nevertheless, very deeply in love with himself. And Baruch's complaint yields at least two important insights about depression. The first is that every complaint that we can make is actually a complaint against God himself. Notice how Baruch blames God for his troubles. The Lord has added sorrow to my pain. And this is an important insight. Despair is always a spiritual matter. All dissatisfaction with life is ultimately dissatisfaction with God. And you can see what Baruch is saying. It's all God's fault. God gave me this lousy job. God has added sorrow to my pain. God made me sick. God took away my loved ones. Whatever the trouble... God is the one who is to blame. And at the same time, and this is a second insight, at the same time that depression is turning against God, it is also turning inward upon the self. Baruch could not see beyond the boundaries of his own troubles. 
He was spending all his time thinking about how tired he was and how much pain he was in and about how many griefs he had to bear. And so God, and I doubt anyone else would have had the courage to do this, cut right to the heart of Baruch's real problem. He was seeking something for himself. Now, the Bible does not mention what Baruch may have been seeking for himself. Maybe he wanted an easier life. Maybe he wanted a promotion. Maybe he was tired of just being an amanuensis. He wanted to be the prophet. After all, he was well-educated. In fact, he came from a prominent family, and yet he was stuck taking dictation and doing Jeremiah's dirty work for him. Well, whatever Baruch was seeking at this moment, according to God, he was being a selfish man. And so God tells Baruch to take his eyes off himself and look at what is happening to everyone else. If he thinks he has problems, he should take a look at his neighbor's. The Lord said, I will overthrow what I have built and uproot what I have planted throughout the land. Should you then seek great things for yourself? Seek them not, for I will bring disaster on all people. God is speaking about the day of judgment. This may refer to a momentous world event which took place this very year, the great battle of Carchemish, where the armies of the ancient Near Eastern world battled to the death. But it may also refer to final judgment, where God says he will bring disaster on all people, which refers to the whole creation. And you see, it is so inappropriate for Baruch to be so selfish when the world is in such great danger. He is having his own private little pity party. Meanwhile, the rest of the world, quite literally, is going to hell. God is going to judge them for their sins. And if worldwide disaster is inevitable, how can Baruch be worried about his own very petty concerns? And there is in this rebuke a reminder to be desperately concerned about the spiritual condition of the world especially our own family and friends. The eternal destiny of every soul hangs in the balance. Either every person here tonight will spend eternity with God, or else we will be banished from God's presence forever. And this is true of the people that we meet on the street and the people in our neighborhood and the people with whom we work. And compared with that momentous eternity, the troubles and trials of our own life scarcely are worth mentioning. They certainly are not worth complaining about. Now, Baruch's rebuke is also a warning to everyone who desires to do something great. I suppose there is this desire deep down in the heart of every believer, a great passion to do something for God. The great missionary statesman, William Carey, challenged Christians to attempt great things for God and to expect great things from God. And what believer here has not wanted to attempt something great for God? 
and to rise to that challenge. I think of the generation after generation of believers who have echoed the bold answer that the prophet Isaiah gave when he heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah answered, Here am I, send me. And at some time or another, every Christian has wanted to stand with the prophet in the presence of God and say, Here I am, Lord. Use me. Send me. I am willing to do anything. I am willing to go anywhere. I am willing to suffer everything for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet even when we make those bold claims, there can be something very self-centered about them. Here am I. Send me. And so some Christians think the important thing is not so much that God's will be done, but that they get to do it. And so they are happy for God to get the glory as long as they get to bask in the limelight. How hard it is to seek only the glory of God. How hard it is to attempt great things for God without also attempting them in some small way for self. And Baruch reminds us not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought. If God has given you some small place of ministry, then receive it and accept it and embrace it with joy. Most probably it is about all that you can handle in any case. God will not ask you to do some great thing until you have proven yourself faithful in a small thing. And do not wait around for God to give you something great to do. Too many Christians put life on hold waiting for some great task to come along. And I suppose that they are a little bit like the character Pip in the Charles Dickens novel, Great Expectations. If you know that story, you remember that Pip was just a poor child, but he had great expectations because he had some wealthy benefactor who was giving him all of this wealth. And so he always knew that great things were in store for him, and he left his family, and he went off to London to wait to see what would happen to him. But in the end, his expectations failed. He did not get money, he did not get the position, he did not get anything else that he expected to have. And if you are waiting to do some great thing, very probably you are wasting God's time. Most of us, very frankly, will never do anything great. And should we then seek great things for ourselves? No, we should seek them not. Instead, we should give our very best for God in the little things. We should be a good worker. We should lead at least one person to Christ. We should raise a godly family. We should support some missionary. And this is the way to seek the glory of God. This is the way truly to do something great for God, to do it in the little things of the Christian life. Hudson Taylor once said, and I have... I suppose quoted this at least once before, a little thing is just a little thing 
But faithfulness in a little thing is a great thing. Not a great thing for yourself, understand. It is a great thing for God and for His glory. Because God is greatly glorified by the little things that are done in His name and for His glory. Now, what will it take for a man like Baruch or for a man or a woman like us to stop seeking great things for ourselves? Well, the answer is that the self must die. The self will not stop seeking greatness for itself until it is put to death. And then, once the self is dead, then the only thing left to do will be to do some small thing or some great thing for God. From time to time, I quote from the Reverend William Still, who ministered for some 50 years in the same church in Aberdeen. The title of his autobiography summarizes his whole approach to the Christian life. He called it Dying to Live. And this is what he writes about death to self. He is thinking especially about preaching, but what he says applies to every Christian. He writes, The deaths one dies before ministry can be hours and days before we minister. And then there is another death afterwards, sometimes worse than the death before. From the moment that you stand there dead in Christ and dead to everything you are and have and ever shall be and have, every breath you breathe thereafter, every thought you think, every word you say, indeed you do, must be done over the top of your own corpse or reaching over it in your preaching to others, then it can only be Jesus that comes over and no one else. And I believe that every preacher, and we might say every Christian, must bear the mark of that death. Your life must be signed by the cross, not just Christ's cross, but your cross in his cross your particular and unique cross that no one ever died, the cross that no one ever could die but you and you alone, your death in Christ's death. And I often think of these words as I step up to the pulpit to preach. And I have to confess that I have yet to see my own self lying as a corpse, barring my way from the pulpit. And that is the way that the sinful self is. The self wants to get up. It wants to come and to take every advantage to minister in its own strength and to seek its own praise and its own glory. And this is why the self must die. This is why your self must die. Die. And of course, the place that selves go to die is to the cross of Jesus Christ. This is what we read in the book of Romans, chapter 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. And so you see that the self has received its death blow on the cross. Jesus died on the cross for all of the selfishness of all of our sins. 
Now the self is dying a long, slow death. And the scripture further teaches us that as it lays dying, we must count ourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, when God has said these things to Baruch, his counsel has not been very soothing. I mean, the last thing that someone wants to hear when he or she is very discouraged is to stop being so selfish. And yet God has Baruch's dearest interests at heart. He loves him. He cares for him like his own son. And so after he rebuked him, God promised him salvation. He said, I will bring disaster on all people, but wherever you go, I will let you escape with your life. Now, Baruch had been many places in his lifetime. He was with Jeremiah in prison. He was there when cousin Hanamel struck a land deal with Jeremiah. Baruch was the one who witnessed the deeds and put them in a clay jar and buried them in the ground for safety. Baruch was by Jeremiah's side when he dictated all of the words of his prophecies. And then after this prophecy was given to Baruch, Baruch went many other places. He risked his life to go to the temple and read Jeremiah's scroll. And then after he had given that scroll to the royal cabinet, he went into hiding for his very life with Jeremiah. And then many years later, Baruch went down to Egypt with the unrighteous remnant of God's people. And there he was in danger again. I suppose he was public enemy number two. Because everyone blamed him for Jeremiah's prophecies. And so Baruch found himself in one dangerous situation after another, but he always survived. Wherever he went, God preserved his life just as he promised. And so we may say that although Baruch was not to seek great things for himself, God did a great thing for Baruch. He saved him. This is the promise of Jesus Christ. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. And that is surely what happened to Baruch. Now, this term for escaping with one's life is one Jeremiah used before. You may remember that God promised Evid Melech, the African servant who rescued Jeremiah from the cistern, he promised him, I will save you. You will not fall by the sword, but will escape with your life. Literally, escaping with your life is a word for taking plunder from a battlefield. The promise is that like a soldier on a desperate day of warfare, Baruch will escape with his own life as the spoils of battle. And Baruch must have clung to that promise throughout the rest of his life. And this is probably why this very short chapter has been preserved in the Bible. Some scholars say that it is out of place, that it doesn't belong here. It belongs back with chapter 36. But I think it is obvious that when Baruch arranged Jeremiah's scroll, he put this prophecy right where it belongs. For Baruch treasured the promise of salvation that God had given to him. 
He treasured and remembered the way that God had spoken to him and answered to him in the midst of his despair. So he put this prophecy right at the end of his life after he had gone down to Egypt to show that God was faithful to his promise to the very end. And of course, everyone who trusts in Jesus Christ has the same promise, the same blessed assurance of salvation. For although we are not to seek great things for ourselves, God has promised to do this one great thing for us. He has promised to give us eternal life in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the testimony. And I read from 1 John chapter 5, God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. And he who has the Son has life. And I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the assurance that we have, the same assurance that Baruch had. And this is where we find our true significance. Not in doing something great. Not in doing something great for ourselves. Not even in doing something great for God. But in what God has done for us by saving us from our sins. And once we understand that we are nothing more than sinners saved by grace, we will no longer seek great things for ourselves. We will be content to glorify God in the little things of life. And this attitude is well expressed in the childlike hymn written by Anna Waring. She wrote, Father, I know that all my life is portioned out for me. I would not have that restless will that hurries to and fro seeking for some great thing to do or some secret thing to know. I would be treated as a child and guided where I go, content to fill a little space if thou be glorified. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we confess that there is in us far too much of self and far too little of Christ. And so we ask that you would teach us to be content with the little things of life, and that even in these small things that you would be greatly glorified, and that your greatness would be all the more known because of our own weakness and the smallness of our own efforts. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to Every Last Word, a ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, featuring the Bible teaching of Dr. Philip Graham Ryken. We appreciate your ongoing support of this broadcast ministry. The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals exists to promote a biblical understanding and worldview. Drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformation theologians from decades, even centuries gone by, we seek to provide contemporary Christian teaching that will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. The Alliance also produces the radio broadcasts The Bible Study Hour, featuring the teaching of the late Dr. James Montgomery Boyce and Dr. Barnhouse in the Bible, featuring the Bible teaching of the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. 
For a full list of radio stations carrying our programs, please visit our website at www.alliancenet.org. Every last word continues through your generous gifts and financial support. If you would like to see this program continue to benefit others as it has benefited you, please prayerfully consider becoming a friend of the Alliance. For more information or to make a contribution, please contact us by calling toll-free 1-800-488-1888. You can also send us a gift by writing to Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, Box 2000, Philadelphia, PA, 19103. Or you can visit us online at www.alliancenet.org. Be sure to ask for a free resource catalog featuring books, audio teachings, commentaries, booklets, videos, and a wealth of other materials from outstanding Reformed teachers and theologians. Thank you again for your continued support and for listening to Every Last Word.